The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. On today's show, I've got Dr. Nick Morgan, speaker coach to the stars and author of the upcoming book, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. Nick and I were introduced to one another through a random LinkedIn suggestion to connect, and our professional relationship has absolutely changed my life. And in this episode, I ask Nick, why is it so hard to communicate with people online, especially people at work, and how do we get better? So if you want to work on your personal communication skills and bridge the digital divide, this show is absolutely for you. So sit tight and I'll be right back with Dr. Nick Morgan and more of Let's Fix Work. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. Lori Rudiman here. You listen to Let's Fix Work because you believe there's more to life than just building your corporate resume. That's why I want to tell you about Build Your Life Resume. It's an eight-week coaching program from my pal, Jesse Itzler, a New York Times bestselling author of Living with a Seal. I took the course earlier this year, and it has helped me in all buckets of my life, work, family, mindfulness, and wellness. You know me. If you want to fix work, you got to fix yourself. And BYLR was a great first step for me. Visit takebylr.com to sign up for Build Your Life Resume. There's one more eight-week coaching program in 2018, which starts on November 1st. So you've got to act today. Jesse will help you get out of ruts, challenge yourself, and tap into your inner reserve to achieve your goals. I took the class and loved it. So visit takebylr.com and sign up for Build Your Life Resume. That's takebylr.com. Sign up today because class begins on November 1st. That's takebylr.com. Hey, Nick Morgan. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Hey, Lori. Thanks for having me on your show. It's great to be here, even though it's in a virtual sense. I know, but we're so on topic and on brand, aren't we? It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, you've written a new book called, Can You Hear Me? How to Connect with People in a Virtual World. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, absolutely. So as I went out speaking about my favorite, favorite topic, which is body language and communications, whenever I would get done and ask the audience if they had any questions, they'd raise their hands and say, well, Nick, this body language stuff's all very interesting, but my world is pretty virtual these days. I manage a team that's in Singapore and California and here with us in New York City say, how do I communicate with them in the ways that you say are important, but only show up unconsciously, only show up face to face and are handled by our unconscious minds? How do we do that in a virtual world? And so I got asked that question enough that I thought I better go research it. And to my surprise, as I got into the research, I found it was much, much worse, the virtual world than I thought. 
I'm a technophile like a lot of other people. I'm an early adapter or adopter, which is it? I think it's early adopter. Yeah. And yeah. I, I'm with you. I, as an early adopter too, feel like technology is really bad. What is it about our devices that makes it worse? So what's happening, uh, very broadly speaking, and then we can get into the details, what's happening is that each of the means of virtual communications that we have embraced so wholeheartedly because they reduce friction for us, as the techies like to say, they make it easier to send emails and to communicate long distance and that kind of thing. And it's free virtually. Except on our souls. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so for those reasons, we embraced it powerfully and wholeheartedly. And especially in the last 10 years with the mobile phone, everybody's got one and we all use them 24-7. So we embrace this and, and it's become essentially this huge unregulated social experiment in what is it like for humans who are hardwired to communicate successfully face-to-face, for better or for worse, we communicate face-to-face. Suddenly, we've put that communication into a half face-to-face, half virtual setting. What is that like? How well does that work? And it turns out that it doesn't work very well at all because basically each one of those virtual means of communication strips out the emotional subtext, which we're so used to getting face-to-face. And yet we're still communicating as if that were working just as well. So we type an email thinking we're talking to other person and we put in our usual sarcastic comment because if we were talking face-to-face, they would see the smirk on our face and they know we were kidding. But of course, in an email, they don't see that smirk. They don't know we're kidding and they get furious at us and we have to spend 10 more emails sorting out the mess we've created. That's summed up in one simple example, the basic experience with virtual communication. I think these experiences that we are having are just so universal and so interesting. It's like we're all miserable and that's the one thing that's uniting our culture right now. In your book, highlights five basic problems with virtual communication. And you start with a lack of feedback. So what do we get wrong with feedback and how is it worse online? And I don't know, I don't want to be so negative here, Nick. Is there a fix to it? Yes, there is a fix. That's the good news. The fixes are actually not complicated. There are a lot of little ones. There's no one big one. You can't just turn a switch and suddenly all virtual communications get made better. But there yeah, are a lot of little things. You can't do that in life with anything anyway, unfortunately. Oh, really? Even though I, I wish. Hoping. Right, yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Tell us a little bit about feedback. Yeah, so we're used to getting feedback in the face-to-face conversations where we know what the other person's intent is in response to what we're saying or because of what they're saying. And that's what we care about. Let's get that clear. Between humans, what we care about is what's the other person's intent. We're hardwired to wonder, is this person friend or foe? That's the first and most basic question we ask. So we want to know, how is it coming across what I'm saying? Does that make this person happier? Or is this making that person angry or whatever's going on? So that basic feedback, which we get so powerfully and easily face-to-face, we don't get in any of the virtual means of communication. And what happens is, and this is where it gets interesting, so our brains are constantly looking for that kind of feedback because we want to know where's the danger in the room? Are people safe for us or is this a dangerous situation? And when we don't get that information, what we do is we fill the channel, the empty channel of communication, and we fill it with the most negative possible information (laughs) because it's safer for us to anticipate danger rather than to assume things are going to be okay. So imagine the evolutionary human 
walking through the savanna in Africa somewhere to the advantage of that human to assume that there's a tiger lurking in the grass. Because if I'm ready anticipating that, then I can take evasive action and not get eaten by the tiger. All right. So So wait, wait, wait. So it's not just me who's chronically negative online in that way. No, exactly. It's what leads to trolling and all the other negative behaviors that we find so weird when we stop and think about it. But fundamentally what's happening is, so when I type an email to somebody or I'm sitting on an audio conference and even on a video conference, which we can talk about later on if you want to get into some of the details, but in those basic situations, I'm not getting emotional intent back from the other people. And so I assume that it's bad. I assume the other people are disinterested or angry at me, or I assume the email I get that could possibly be construed to have a kind of a mean, sarcastic edge. I assume that mean, sarcastic edge. And then I get all angry and it all goes downhill from there. That is so crazy. You know, in your book, I read that you're an advocate of emoji. Did I read that correctly? Did. And this is in the face of some research that suggests <laughs> the business world isn't quite ready yet for emojis on a large scale. What happens is senior executives and people in charge who are typically of a slightly older generation still find emojis kind of hard to accept. And so they assume that if you put emojis in, you're being a little kind of amateurish or... Yeah, or you're just trying to hack your way to a conversation, right? Yeah, yeah. I want words. Yeah, exactly. Or you're being a little millennial or something. I mean, there's a kind of a, probably an age bias in there too. But I'm saying fight all that because emojis, they're a blunt instrument, but the single best way you have of ensuring that your email doesn't get misconstrued. So if you insist on saying those clever, witty things then put in the smiley face because then at least the other person will know you're intending it to be funny and they can react accordingly. Well, that's really good advice for someone like me who's known for being direct, but trying to be a little bit funny, right? You know, that's kind of how I am. But sometimes I catch myself, I don't know, going a little too far online. And I guess I'm not alone. There are a lot of people who are like me who are kind of jerks. So what's going on in my brain when I'm going a little too far and being a little too cruel? And what criteria should I follow to make sure that I'm not such a jerk? Yeah, you need to understand that you're not getting the normal empathy read that we get when we're face to face. And yet we're still acting, as I suggest, we're general as if we were. So we're generals fighting the last war. That's really the issue. And we're communicating as if it was still the same kinds of communication face to face. And so What happens is we'll say something and then we don't get that instant hurt look (laughs) that you would have gotten with the nasty, cruel thing you just said. Yeah. And so that encourages us to go a little further. And over time, we kind of lose that sense, that nuanced and delicate sense of how far what we say goes with people and to what extent does it hurt their feelings and that kind of thing. That's all blunted because we're not getting that empathy read back from other people. And so we've all gotten a little nastier online and it's a tragedy and it's led to all those epidemics of loneliness and depression that we hear about and talk about. And one of the stats that's most alarming to me is that there's a straight line relationship between the number of hours that people spend on their cell phones and depression. That is, the more hours they spend, the more likely they are to be depressed. And depression and even suicide is rising at alarming rates in the U.S. and in the 
developed world. So we've got a real problem here. This is not just email etiquette, low-level yeah. kind of stuff. It doesn't feel just like a business problem. It feels like a societal problem. And I knew virtual communications were problematic and difficult when my mom, who has not worked in 20 years, decided to get a LinkedIn account. And you ask her, why are you on LinkedIn, mom? And she's like, I don't know. I just have an account, right? She feels compelled to join the herd and get online. So I wonder why be online in the first place right now and any best practices to ensure that what you're doing online is healthy? Well, it's a good question. It's a question that we probably should be asking ourselves. Do I need to be online at all? And sadly, the answer is if you're in business at all, the answer is yes, you need to be just because if you're not online, you don't exist. The first thing that people do now in an astonishing variety of situations is Google you. If they meet you for the first time, if you're trying to do business with them in some way, if you're trying to date their daughter or parent. <laughs> right, of course. Yeah. Whatever the situation is. Is it Googling or stalking? <laughs> well, a Googling, I guess, can become stalking, right? <laughs> That's right. And that's one of the points. It starts out, it's just Googling. It's normal behavior now. Something that would have felt like stalking years ago, right, before we had it. But now it's easy to check people out online. And so we do it compulsively. And the, the only cure for that, and I think it's a really important one, is that you need to Google yourself and you need to start to control what's out there about you online. Now, in Europe, they've passed some laws about data that allows you to try to get things removed. We don't have that law in the U.S. yet. We may get it. But either way, it still takes an act of will on your part to begin to control the information that's out there about you online. And the challenge is machines never forget. So once you get that information, once the information is out there, and the classic example is your drunken Facebook frat boy or frat girl pictures from the great party. It seemed like such a good idea when you were a 22 year old and now you're 28 and you're trying to get a job and it's out there and it doesn't seem like such a good idea. So it's hard to get rid of that stuff. But what you can do is drown it in positive information. And so this means you take charge of your online persona. First of all, figure out what it is, then take charge of your online persona and put out positive information that gives the world a picture of you that you want it to have. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Although I'm really concerned about the rise of all these personal branding gurus because I think there's a message out there that you need to constantly like over aggressively work on this image of you that may or may not be authentic. And when I listen to some of these personal branding experts, I want to say I'm not a tube of toothpaste. I'm not a bottle of laundry detergent. I have a soul. So do you have any good tips for people to get that right? Any active things they should do for their personal brand and their SEO and what goes too far? It's a great question. What I found is that if it isn't authentic, you won't keep it up. It's just too much effort. So in a sense, your question answers itself in that, and I've done this many, many times, I'll Google somebody and what I'll see is Oh, one blog post that was done a year and a half ago. Yeah. <laughs> and then they stopped. Sure. Yeah. And then I know, okay, so this person isn't comfortable doing that, doesn't have the energy or whatever, doesn't have the passion, is doing it probably because some brand guru told her it was a good idea. And so what you see is that only people with genuine passion about an idea can keep that kind of output up. 
for the rest of us, if you don't have that kind of engagement or wish to engage in that way, then I would say you need to do some sort of minimal version of that, putting yourself out there. But you get to choose the information. Make the mistake of assuming that in this authentic sort of YouTube era that we live in, that authenticity means full disclosure, everything, warts and all. And no, we don't want to know that much. We're, we're impatient, information overloaded people. We've got way too much information to get through <laughs> in the day. We don't want to know everything about you. We true, want to know a, a couple of the high points and that's it. And maybe we don't even want to remember those. So it's actually easier than you think in that sense, because we don't have an all-consuming hunger to find out all the lurid details about other people's lives, with a few exceptions. And so just put out what you're comfortable putting out. Well, Nick, when we come back, we're going to talk about whether or not you're optimistic or pessimistic about the future of work in the virtual world. And we're also going to try to get my mom off of LinkedIn. So sit tight, Nick, and sit tight, everybody else. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody, it's Lori Brudeman here. You know I'm all in on the Let's Fix Work podcast. I want to deprioritize corporate interests, amplify good ideas, and help people fix work by fixing themselves. But I need your help. Please head over to patreon.com forward slash let's fix work and contribute to the podcast's growth. I need your help in building an infrastructure, growing the community, and making Let's Fix Work a permanent place for good ideas. Your donation is essential for the show's success, and any contribution would mean the world to me. Thank you again so much for listening to Let's Fix Work, and thanks in advance for your support. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Let's Fix Work. My guest today is Nick Morgan. Hey, Nick. How you doing? I'm doing great, Lori. How are you? Good, good. You enjoyed the first half of the show? I did. And let me be the first to ask the essential question, which should set up the second half of the show which is uh, that I urge everybody to start asking in these kind of virtual conversations, which is, how did what I just say make you feel? Ooh, I love that. Well, I felt like I was talking to someone who knows a thing or two about virtual communications, so I feel like I've learned something. How's that for an answer? That's good. That's yeah. good. I like that. Thank you. Yeah, I'll take that. I mean it. Thank you. The idea is that we want to set up a safe place for us online to begin to acknowledge each other's feelings, but especially in response to something that we've said. So this is exactly the opposite of the tendency now, which is to troll, or as you so honestly admitted, to get a little edgier, a little nastier than you would normally, Yeah, that you would in person. And I think by asking that question, you show the other person some respect, just acknowledging that they're human too, and have a right to their response. And then you're genuinely trying to find out what it is because you can react accordingly. So for me, that's the question that should guide our online, our virtual communications in many forms. And I have some other examples and things of ways to do that. But that's the fundamental question. Yeah, that's a fascinating question because what you're demonstrating right there is a healthy adult, <laughs> you know, and I think that's just lacking in our society. And I wonder if that's been lacking for longer, and, and I know it has, than the invention of the iPhone. And it's just that the iPhone and mobile devices are amplifying that, right? But it's not just these devices with no screen that suck so badly because, I don't know, I sit on so many webinars and so many conference calls and we can see one another, but they stink too. I mean, they're not any better. So what's wrong with webinars and conference calls? 
So what's wrong with webinars and conference calls is a couple of things. If it has a visual component, the first thing to understand is we kind of assume that because I can see the other person, therefore it's just like being there. Yeah, I assume that. Yeah, what you're actually seeing is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional human being, of course. Yeah. Right, because you're yeah. just seeing it on a screen. Right. right. Now think about what that means. The most important aspect of it is completely unconscious for humans, which is that we spend an enormous amount of unconscious energy determining where we are in space very precisely and where everybody who is around us is in space. And so that's, for example, why we find cocktail parties so tiring because there are a lot of people and they're milling around and it's hard to keep track of them all. And we do this, by the way, even for people behind us that we can't see Maybe out of the corner of our eye, but maybe we just feel prickling on the back of our neck. Oh, yeah. That guy who's bum-rushing me at the grocery store. and just Yeah, exactly. Oh, I hate that guy. Yeah. yeah, we're keeping track of all those people. Yeah. And that's hard work. Now, in a video setting, we can't do it because the two dimensions robs us of that three-dimensional sense. It's called preoperception, by the way. And it's like a sixth sense. Neuroscientists talk about it as if it were a sixth sense. We normal human beings think of it. We don't think of it at all, but we think of the normal five senses as all that we have to worry about. But actually, this sixth one is incredibly important to us because, again, it's hardwired in us for survival. Yeah. And so you can't do that on a video conference because you're only seeing two dimensions. It's very hard to judge how far away that person is. So what am I doing instead? So you're assuming that person is further away than they actually are, which makes you work harder to communicate with them, which is why video conferences are tiring and people often end up shouting by the end, right? That's 100% true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're also assuming, remember again, you're assuming the worst. So you're assuming that other person is more dangerous than they actually are. Oh. And so in many subtle ways, I will attribute negative connotations to the things that you and your colleagues say around the meeting because, again, it's safer for me to be more worried rather than less worried. God, that's really, really fascinating. And, you know, it confirms all the experiences that I'm having on these group video chats where you're right. At the end of the video chat, I'm absolutely yelling at people, like right. I'm screaming at them. And I don't and know why. So this, this, yeah. yeah, definitely yeah. makes sense. Well, you know, Nick, it's not all bad out there because we met online. We met because LinkedIn... And their algorithmic gods told me that I needed to know you. And it shoved some of your content in my feed, right? And it turned out to be fabulous. Our connection is one of the most important things that's happened to my life in the past couple of years. Like we're doing some great work together. And I just wonder, what's the benefit of connecting online? And can we care for people online in similar ways as we do in the real world? Well, first of all, thank you for that kind comment. Oh, I mean and it, yeah. Thank you. And thank you for the great work you're doing. The answer is yes. If we become more mindful, to use an overworked word right now, but I mean that just in the simple sense of becoming aware of things that we take for granted and are so easy to do face to face. So if you and I had met initially in a coffee shop and had a cup of coffee, and I probably would have had pumpkin bread or a coffee cake or something, and you probably would have been healthy and not had a sugary, <laughs> no, a sugary not these snack. Days, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there I would have been feeling slightly guilty about that, but our exchange of information would have been much richer and fuller. That's the main thing to understand is yeah. 
people talk about how the virtual world is great because it's free and so easy to send email. We can send tons of them, and we do, and we're information overloaded as a result. But actually, meeting somebody face-to-face, especially for the first time, is incredibly efficient because we can establish a sense of connection much more rapidly and with much more depth than we can do online. It takes a lot longer online. And again, because most of us don't know how to do it properly, we may never establish that stronger relationship online unless we work at it consciously. And so part of it is, as I say, is starting to label the emotions which otherwise would get conveyed unconsciously face-to-face. And so we need to start putting into our speech language like, I'm really excited to be on this call and it's really fun to see you again or to talk to you again. And that comment was interesting. Let me think about it for a minute. I have some negative responses to that as well as some positive and so on and so on. So it's about just getting much more mindful again about those emotional undertones, which you would have assumed would be conveyed face to face, but are not getting conveyed virtually. Yeah, there are so many paradoxes between what we know to be true about virtual communication, the science that you're bringing to this conversation, and then what we believe to be true. Because I think so many people feel as if they have more friends or more relationships online than they've ever had before because they have you know 500 or 5,000 Facebook friends. But the opposite is proving to be true. As you describe it in this conversation, we're more alone. We have to work harder at our relationships. And it just I don't know, Nick, it's just a dark picture that's being painted of the virtual world. So one of the ways that you talk about creating better connections online, besides labeling and using better, more descriptive language, is to use Mm. humor. But even humor is problematic online. I mean, as an HR lady, I can see it all day long. People make jokes that are inappropriate, or like me, they go a step too far. So how do we use humor to strengthen some of these relationships that we're having? Well, you have to know your audience. (laughs) Yeah. And boy, do you have to know your audience. I mean, that's so essential because otherwise, to your point exactly, you're going to say something that just rubs the other person the wrong way. So never, ever, ever attempt your own off strange form of humor. Not you personally, but... Wait, wait. You are an expert in communication and humor. You're quite funny yourself. Before you even answer the question around humor and online behavior, Mm. why do people think they're funnier than they really are? Why does that happen? Well, I mean, we're all legends in our own (laughs) minds, basically. (laughs) One of the things that people do socially when they're together is they support each other. And so we smile at other people's jokes, even if we don't really feel hilariously inclined because we're being supportive. That's something we humans naturally do. We are hardwired to share emotions and we really are a communal species. And that's something that's very hard, especially for Americans to understand because it's such an important part of our culture to be independent and be the Marlboro man or the Marlboro woman. Yeah, right. But actually our happiest moments as humans are when we are together as a tribe, let's say, and experiencing emotions. And so that's why people, even in the online world and the convenience of magnificent, gigantic televisions, still go to sporting events. You'd think, why would you go to a professional football game when it's cold and you need one of those seats just to keep you from freezing, right? One of those heated yeah. <laughs> pads, right? Right. And why would you do that? And the reason is because you're going to pick up the excitement 
and the energy of being there from all the people around you. Yeah, virtual NFL does not give the same kind of feeling. I it can doesn't see give you the same feeling. Yeah. So how do we use humor online to strengthen these relationships? As I say, once you know the person, you know what's acceptable in that world. And by the way, do remember to ask the question, how does what I just say make you feel? Then one of the ways you can do it is in the context of sharing cultural information. And so I talk about this in dealing with online work teams that are spread all over the world. And so one of your jobs, uh, you sitting in Singapore or in the United States or in Europe, is to convey a little bit of what your culture is. So what your culture loves, what your culture hates, what your culture finds funny to those other people. And that will bring the team closer and allow them to do some of the necessary bonding to have an effective relationship and get work done that they would do so easily if they all met face to face, but is much harder to do online. And so I suggest, for instance, if you're going to be communicating primarily with audio conferences, take a quick 30 second video of your surroundings or take your camera along with you to a culturally interesting meal that you're going to have and film a little bit of that and explain why this has meaning to you. If you're Scottish, please tell us what haggis is all about. <laughs> so we finally know the answer to that question. And, and that way you can begin to convey some of the culture and just by bringing it up and becoming conscious of it and slowing down that communication a little bit, then you can put humor into that situation and people will know to accept it in the spirit with which it's given. That is as an aspect of your culture. If you just come in shooting with your jokes, then you're liable to offend. Oh, yeah. I've done that myself. So I've lived that life. That's good advice. Well, you know, as you talk about best practices for virtual communication, what I hear you saying is that people need to start making a more intentional effort to connect on a human-to-human -human level. And I think for me, that's just good life advice, right? You know, you've described some best practices for virtual communication in the book around clarity, good writing, conciseness. So where's the overlap between the real world and the virtual world? Well, actually, I do believe you're absolutely right. I do believe that if we start adopting some of these good behaviors, that will improve our regular world uh, lives as well. Because one of the things that's happened is as you alluded to at the very beginning, our bad virtual world behaviors have infected our real life behaviors. And I would not be the first person to observe that we live in an angry age and there's a lot of negativity out there and people bemoan it and then they go on to complain within their tribe how awful those other people are. So <laughs> we all contribute to it that way. And I think by slowing down and becoming more intentional and by surfacing our emotions and also asking other people to do the same. So creating a safe and respectful place where other people can do that. I think maybe we could improve our face-to-face -face lives as well, because the blurring of the two is something that's really powerful and ubiquitous, and we don't really know what the effect, the long-term effect is going to be. So far, the effects don't look great, to be honest. I mean, the initial enthusiasm when we all hooked up online and discovered Twitter and told each other in 140 character tweets what we were having for lunch. And it was all fun and new. All that was great. But now, 10 years on, we're beginning to see some of the negative effects of it. And yet, this is just a vast, unregulated social experiment. We're seeing how it works. 
as we start to wrap up this segment, I wonder where is this going, Nick? Do you have any predictions for the future of virtual communications? Does it get better? Does it get worse? Or do you just not know? Well, of course, I don't know. I'm no better than anybody else in predicting the future. But I did hear the other day a fascinating example of something that's certain to come to many of us, especially business people who spend a lot of time on the road. Of course, one of the huge impetuses behind virtual communications is it allows you to travel less and budget hawks everywhere are thrilled with that and find all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't travel just simply in order to save money because it's expensive and time consuming, but it also has a human wear and tear. So a friend of mine emailed me, a very excited email with a little clip saying, look at this picture. I gave a speech from my home office and he's based here in the United States to Singapore I was a hologram in Singapore. I could see the audience and interact with them live. Now, I need to get more details. I don't know how much it costs and how they set it up and what were the hand-holding conventions that allowed that kind of data to be exchanged. It must have been enormous throughput for the data. So I'm wild to know more details. But I think holograms are definitely in our future because it does give people yet a further sense of presence, which is what we all crave. And it probably improves the give and take. It looks a little more three-dimensional than a two-dimensional flat screen like we see most video conferences on. So holograms are coming next. We'll find out how good they are, how much that actually improves things, or how much it looks and feels like face-to-face but actually still isn't. And I'm very curious to determine that. So that's my one fearless prediction is there are holograms in your future. I love it, except I hate the idea of somebody beaming themselves into my house. Just like I'm aggressively anti anybody calling my house anymore, I've actually turned off my landline because I don't want anybody invading my personal space at home. So the idea that somebody could beam themselves into my life, I don't know, there's going to have to be some sort of rules around that, right? And we're going to probably struggle around that as well. We sure are. There was a sea change somewhere on the line. We went from seeing phone calls as like a knock on the door, yeah, a kind of a welcome entrance into our lives. Now we think of phone calls as an interruption, unless, of <laughs> course, we've planned for them. Right, right. God, times are so different. They've really changed just in the past 10 years. I really want everybody to read your book. I enjoyed it so much. I learned a lot about myself and how to communicate more effectively. So where can we find it and you online? So go to publicwords, that's our website, .com. And there's a contact opportunity there. Just respond, fill out the form, and we will get right on it. Also, you can find Can You Hear Me out, I think it's out in Kindle mid-October and in hardback form by the end of October. So, of course, you can go to Amazon. There's also a link on on the website, publicwords.com, to order the book. So please join the conversation and tell me, how did what I said in the book make you feel? I love it. Well, I'm so glad we had a chance to connect again, Nick. It's always good to see you. And thanks again for being a guest on Let's Fix Work. Thanks, Lori. Yeah, everybody stick around. We'll be right back after the break with more Let's Fix Work. Hey, everybody. You know I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now, I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on. I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying. 
I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Um, I don't know if you know this, but Dr. Nick Morgan is currently working with me on my book, and he helped me to get an agent for the book that is tentatively titled Let's Fix Work. And I am so grateful that the internet brought us together. You know, I've kind of re-engineered how Nick and I met, and he's worked with Sam Weston, who's a former guest of the show, the guy with the New Zealand accent. And Nick has also worked with a colleague of mine by the name of Ryan Estes. And I think it's just that the algorithmic gods were really working overtime to make a great recommendation and change my life. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino, Megan Doherty, and Gerson Lafleche work virtually and work hard to make this show great. You know, our numbers are up here at Let's Fix Work, and we're just so happy that you're happy, but we would love for you to hit the subscribe button on your podcast platform. And we would love for you to join the Patreon community at patreon.com forward slash Let's Fix Work. You can get extra goodies and benefits if you support the show. That's all for this week, and I really hope you enjoyed it. It's such a pleasure to talk to you about your career and your lives, and we'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by subscribing to this podcast and help us get the word out by leaving a review. 